Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley Sermon Podcast. This week we hear from our seminarian, Dan Carlson, as he preaches from the lectionary, which was Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. As always, you can find more information about All Souls or find more sermons from All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. Hope to see you around sometime. So today's gospel happens in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. And this being ancient Judaism, we don't have to specify more than that because there's just the one. And it is the center of the religious universe that Jesus lives in. So Jesus is locked in debate with various religious leaders of his day. And our reading today actually happens in the middle of a chapter that has a number of these little conflicts and sparring and skirmishes, which honestly makes today's reading all the more surprising when you consider the tone of it. Right in the middle of all this verbal sparring, and don't worry about Jesus, he is just theologically dunking on people left and right, a scribe steps forward and he asks Jesus this critical question. And Jesus answers, and the scribe is like, yes, that is exactly the right answer, plus I have a few additional thoughts. (laughs) And then Jesus is like, that's a pretty good answer too. These guys appear to be seconds away from a fist bump. It's kind of this amazing moment where in the middle of all this conflict, you see genuine goodwill on both sides. They can recognize when the opposition is making a valid point. And then they go right back to debating because this is rabbinic Judaism and that's how the tradition works. You debate your way towards God. But that bit where they agree is which commandment matters the most. And they decide it is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds amazing and beautiful and poetic, but what does it actually mean? That's what I want to talk about today. Well, that and Halloween, because I love Halloween. I love the religious side of it. I love the idea that we are entering into All Saints and All Souls days, this time where we are a little more connected with the dead. But I also love the less sacred side of it, I love the spooky stories, I love the monster movies, I love the candy and the cheap plastic skeletons out in the front yard. It's an amazing moment in our increasingly isolated society where we reach out and we actually connect in this incredibly goofy and very human way with our neighbors, with the stranger, with some kid in a Paw Patrol costume. So in honor of Halloween, I'm going to come at our gospel lesson from a bit of an odd angle. I am going to talk today about vampires, about monsters, and about one of the things which scares me the most in the whole world. So first up, vampires. And I need to really kind of back up and get a run at this one, so bear with me. I'm headed somewhere with this. When I was a teenager, I repeatedly attempted to read the Bible all the way through from cover to cover, from Genesis 1-1 
to Revelation, whatever the last verse of Revelation is. I grew up in an extremely churchy family, and this just seemed like the sort of thing that a good Christian lad should attempt. But time after time, it didn't really work out. Let me tell you why. I would start in Genesis, and all was good. Lots of stories of people wandering the earth, fighting battles, witnessing miracles, going down into Egypt, and so forth. This was definitely the content I had come for, even if the bit with Abraham nearly sacrificing Isaac freaked me out a bit. But so far, so good. Next up, Exodus. And right out of the gate, we have got baby Moses in a basket, plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This is good stuff. I am totally into it. But somewhere near the middle of Exodus, things begin to bog down a bit as we get a lot of detail on the tent of meeting where the Israelites are going to connect with their God. But I figure, hey, there must be some reason I need to know about all these fabrics, and I am just going to press on through. So far, so good. But by the end of Exodus, there is some very strange stuff going on with blood, and this starts to concern me. And this focus on blood just gets more prominent in Leviticus. Blood from animal sacrifices is being sprinkled on people and objects. It is being dashed against the sides of altars. It's all pretty shocking. It's like the most pagan thing my teenage mind can imagine, and it's right there on the pages of the Bible. So somewhere in the middle of that particular stretch of the Bible, I always decide I'm just going to skip ahead a little and try to find something a little less bloody and terrifying. Yet it turned out to be a good thing that I made all these repeated failed attempts at the first few books of the Bible, because in my 11th grade English class, I read Bram Stoker's novel Dracula for the first time. And when I got to the part in chapter 11, where Renfield, the disturbed guy who basically worships Dracula, begins shouting repeatedly, the blood is the life. I knew that phrase. Renfield was quoting the Bible. That phrase turns up in Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 12. All places where folks are told to do certain things with blood, but definitely, positively, do not eat it. The blood is the life. Once I was primed to connect Dracula with the Bible, I started picking up on all sorts of religious stuff going on in that novel. The vampire is the opposite of Jesus. Instead of offering his blood for the life of others, as Jesus does, Dracula takes the blood of others to extend his own life. All those bits in the novel where it is clear that vampires cannot be in the presence of consecrated Eucharistic host, well, it makes a lot of sense if you realize these creatures are antichrists. They are literally the opposite of Christ. Vampires and Dracula cannot abide the Eucharistic host. It is more powerful than they are. It was, oddly enough, my interest in this whole vampire connection which led me to begin grasping the significance of blood as a symbol in the Bible. Blood in the Bible is the absolute essence of life. It is life in its most concentrated form. The ancient Israelites understood death as a kind of polluting power which tainted things. People in the community would do evil, and that would result in death tainting their very holiest places and symbols. 
So when the ancient law depicts blood being sprinkled or dashed on holy things, they are using blood like a kind of moral detergent. The only way to get rid of all that polluting death is to expose it to pure concentrated life. That's the symbolism. You can see it actually in today's reading from Hebrews where all that ancient animal blood sprinkling gets compared to the work of Jesus pouring out his blood to take away the power of death on a cosmic scale. Blood in the Bible signifies the absolute essence of a life. And so there is a reason that Jesus connects the wine of the Last Supper with his blood. The imagery is meant to make a very strong impression. And I'm not sure we do ourselves any favors when we attempt to file off the sharp edges of what's being said. Jesus was inviting those who would come after him to feed on the essence of his life, which turns out to be the divine life itself. In the Eucharist, Christians become reverse vampires. Vampires transform into beings who take life. Christians transform into beings who give it away. We give our lives back to God through our neighbors. We follow in Christ's way, pouring out our lives for the good of the world. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Next stop, monsters. So I love monsters, and I love stories with monsters, and I always have. And for as long as I've been reading the Bible, which, as we've covered, is my entire life, I have always particularly loved the bits with monsters. There are giants all over the early tales of Israel. There are evil spirits all over the New Testament. But honestly, for real quality monster reading in the Bible, you cannot beat the books of Daniel and Revelation. Those two books of the Bible depict the evil forces of this world as dragons and giant beasts emerging from the sea. These are massive things covered with teeth and horns and eyes and claws. The Bible depicts the evil empires and oppressive systems of this world as monsters so we can see the reality of their strength and also so we can see them defeated because that's the point of biblical monsters, to tell us that the power of evil is very, very real, but it is not ultimate. In the gospel narratives, these monsters hover around mostly in the form of demons. These monsters are powerful, but they are also now strangely hidden. They can get inside of people. The mission of Jesus turns out to not be about defeating bad people, but about freeing people from their enslavement to these dark, mysterious powers. The kingdom of God is not about conquering people, but liberating them, no matter the cost. You will love your neighbor as you love yourself. Third stop, one of the things that scares me most in all the world. So I told you I like spooky stories, and I do. I told you I like monsters, and I do. But honestly, these things don't really scare me. Here's what does. Often when I sit down to eat my dinner, I reflect on how suspiciously cheap my groceries are compared to the cost of food in other parts of the world. This leads me to further questions. Who labored long hours in the sun for this? Who was exposed to carcinogenic pesticides? Who was forced to do work I would never do for pay I would never accept 
so that I could have this food. Basically, whose blood is in my food? In those moments, I suspect that I am the vampire. I'm the monster. And that terrifies me. Because, I mean, given such realities, what does it even mean to love God and neighbor? Like, for real. Like, not some abstraction called neighbor, but the actual lady who made the novelty t-shirt I bought at Target, the one who worked until 4 a.m. on a crowded assembly line in stifling heat before returning home to make dinner in a shed with no electricity. How do I stop feeding on her blood? How do I stop feeding on the essence of her life? I can't just decide tomorrow that I am going to opt out of contributing to these things. The oppression of other people is woven into every aspect of our culture. It is in the food we eat, it is in the clothing we wear, it is in the electronics we use. It's everywhere. It's those monsters that Daniel and Revelation warned us about, and they are coming out of the sea. They are real, and they are powerful, and they have us all in their grip. When we realize this, it's incredibly easy to fall into despair, to just want to look away. We feel like Frankenstein's monster seeing himself in a mirror for the first time and shattering it, because who honestly wants to know that they're a monster? In my seminary studies, I'm currently taking a class on Christian ethics, and in this class, I've been thinking about these questions quite a bit, and I think I have begun to glimpse a way forward from our terrifying position. So there is a reality which undergirds the whole of Christianity, and it is easy to overlook when we teeter on the brink of overwhelming guilt and hopelessness. The reality I am referring to is this, we are loved. We are deeply flawed. We are often hypocritical. We are never as innocent as we like to pretend that we are. And none of this makes any difference to our value whatsoever. We are loved by an eternal love which is utterly and completely unconditional. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This love which burns at the heart of Christianity is not some kind of narcissistic infatuation with our own goodness. It is much more powerful than that. It is much more honest than that. This is love that frees us from the need to constantly justify ourselves as being good. It frees us from minimizing the harms to which we contribute. It frees us to actually tell the truth, knowing that this truth-telling does not make us monsters, it just makes us honest. It makes us able to stare reality full in the face and begin to ask what it truly means to love our neighbor. Because in the final analysis, we are loved beyond measure, and this does not change one iota of our responsibility to do something about that blood in our food and the ongoing suffering of our neighbors. This is what a Christian life is for learning to pour out our lives just a little more at a time for the good of others. It's hard work, and it will not end for as long as we live. There's no finish line here. There's just a direction we can keep on moving. Understanding our belovedness gives us the courage to avoid being paralyzed with guilt or fear or hopelessness. 
We can't simply opt out of all forms of oppression starting tomorrow morning, but that doesn't mean we can't do something tomorrow, something concrete, something which moves us a few more steps down the path of the reverse vampire, pouring out a little more of our life for the good of someone else. There is a wonderful rabbinic proverb found in the Mishnah, which summarizes our task. It says, you are not obliged to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. You are not obliged to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you.